And so for me, you know, it's 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 listening so much to what people are telling me about their loved one, their their husband, their wife, their brother, their sister, their grandparent, whatever it is, and just listening and, and trying to figure out what is the best way to help this person in front of me. Because it's not always go to a treatment center. Hey, fellow brethren out there that work at treatment centers and stuff like that, the programs are good out there and there's a lot of bad ones, right? But yeah, you, anybody will take your money. So it's how do you get your loved one the best help? And and it may not be going to treat. It might just be like, hey, um, let me just go have coffee with your husband and talk to him about recovery and share my story. Sobriety is scary. That's why Untapped Keg explores different perspectives of sobriety and mental health so that you know you are not alone. Hopefully, you can find something you can implement into your own life. Sobriety and mental health are topics that often are uncomfortable and complex. We do not shy away from any conversation. But you should know we try to be respectful. But there's always room to learn and grow. Everyone is welcome here, as you are, and you will be respected. We are not medical professionals and do not give medical advice. Please seek medical care if you need it. Now let's get to the show. Welcome. Thank you for tapping into some Untapped Keg podcast where we explore different perspectives into sobriety and mental health so that you know you're not alone. The one thing that we believe here is there's only one right way to sobriety and that's the way that works for you. So hopefully you can take something from this episode, put it into your own life. I'm RJ Zimmerman and I'm very excited to have Rob Lohman here with me, the author of best-selling book, The Addiction Intervention Book, also the founder of Lifted from the Rut, divinely freed from alcoholism and drug addiction in 2001. Rob has helped thousands of individuals discover freedom from addiction. How are you doing today, Rob? Man, I'm doing awesome. Feeling good. It's a beautiful day here in Colorado, so uh, I'm here for you, man, for your people. <laughs> I appreciate that. I love I love everything that you're doing like around it. And we talked about this before the show too, but like, you know, you're doing your swim for recovery. And do you want to talk about that real quick? Let's let's get into that. Yeah, sure. So like a month ago, I was swimming in the pool because that's been a real big part of my mental health in my own recovery. It was big in my addiction as well. But um, I was swimming in the pool and literally I feel like God just kind of downloaded swim for recovery. Like I'm like, what the heck is swim for recovery? So I just journaled about it and it turned out to, and I didn't even know that September was recovery month. I wasn't paying attention to that, but it turns out that this month I'm actually swimming one mile a day, that's 66 laps a day and in the pool here at the local gym and then sharing one recovery story to just, again, show people there's multiple ways to recovery and how to enjoy recovery. Yeah. So we're on day seven. I don't know what day we're on right now, but Hey, we're in September and uh, swimming a mile a day and it's just been awesome. And, the cool thing is, RJ, when I swim, I, I literally like tomorrow, I'll, pro- I'll pray for you. Um, I literally pray for people on each lap and just think about programs, clients, organizations. And I just sit there and like pray for them while I swim the 66 laps. And um, it's been it's been great for me and my mental health. So I'm excited. Thanks for that. Yeah, swimforrecovery.com. People can go watch all the stories I've interviewed. And, you know, if they want to support it, I'm raising money for my nonprofit, too, to help people that can't afford the help. That's amazing. So if you want to check that out, it'll be in the show notes below, swimforrecovery.com. Um, 
Rob, why don't you let us in a little bit about you here? Like, what what is your the beginning of your sobriety look like? Oh, the beginning of my sobriety. Well, I would okay. say like when I say that, usually yeah. you know we have the story leading up, but like yeah. so that's that's kind of what I mean. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Yeah, I'll yeah. start wherever you want me to, man. It's uh, it it, it all has its starting endpoints, but it's all right. just kind of like a bowl of spaghetti thrown together. But um, I will let people know my sobriety date, my freedom date is. Uh, June 8th, 2001. So 21 years down the road, still have not had one craving the whole time. It's just been divinely freed from that. But, you know, before then, it was like there wasn't even 21 days, you know, of sobriety, sometimes 21 hours right? in long stretches, you know. And um, and it was just scary stuff. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home, started drinking at 14, was introduced. Well, alcohol was always around my family, you know. So it was attractive. It wasn't the chaos of like, oh, dad has a DUI and mom's passed out on the floor. Grandpa, like there wasn't any of that. Yeah. It was just in- interesting. And I'm like, oh, that looks cool. So I tried it and it was kind of like, I feel like alcoholism had me at when I opened my first beer. Right. Um, but it was, just, it was really game on for the next 15 years, RJ. And it was just a life of depravity and scared stuff and, you know, near death experiences and, um, opportunities to change my life and I didn't take them. And it was just, it was rough stuff for sure. What was the moment where you were like this, I need to make a change this time is it's for real. And it's like, I don't want to say it's an epiphany. I don't think it's rock bottom cause it's not for everybody. Right. But there's, there's moments and it, I think Jack said it really well, who was on our podcast, the, like probably about 15 episodes, he said a seed gets planted and then sometime down the road that seed sprouts and that's part of the journey, right? So what what was that moment for you? Well, I can tell you throughout the journey, I never once said, I'll never do that again because I just knew I would, right? So <laughs> I just knew I wasn't, I, I'd be done when I, when God wanted me to be done or I was supposed to be done. But there were definitely moments along the along the way. Like I remember in college once, I was right. I was tripping on acid, drunker than heck. Stole a fraternity brother's bicycle, right? Ooh. And and my buddy uh, Vince and I were just riding along on the bikes, and and we were out near the rock quarry. And I just remember at the very last second, he tackled me off of the bike, and the bike went off the edge, and it was like three hundred feet down in the rock quarry, and it was just, whoa, man. I mean, that that was one of the moments where I almost really died in my addiction. But it didn't stop me. It was just kind of like, well, that was crazy. Oh, well, we won't tell him about his bike. It just <laughs> disappeared, right? <laughs> yeah. That would have been one one good reason to, like, stop. Um, totaling my car right before my senior year. My car went end over end six times, you know, and that would have been a good chance to stop, but just didn't think about it. And just all those kind of moments, right? But then it, it started getting really bad towards the end, and I started dealing a lot with suicide ideation. I was 28, 29 years old dealing a lot with suicide ideation. And this was the first time I really, truly thought maybe I should quit drinking. I mean, I knew I should have quit drinking at 14 when it went, right? Yeah. But 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 I never had any big consequences, RJ. It was just kind of, you know, out the way. And it's just, if I would have known what I know now, <laughs> you know, it's like you look back on it. So I want to tell your guests one thing real quick, because this is important while they're listening. I want them to write it down, because, you know, sometimes people forget to finish a podcast episode. Right. And I'm going to get back to that later because the yeah. kids cry in, the dog pooped in the front yard, you know, whatever. Absolutely. Um, but 
I want to give your people a free gift. So if people go to freerecoverybook.com, just write that down and you can listen to the rest of the show, but freerecoverybook.com. Go check out, um, when you're listening to this, the book that's available is going to change here and there. So right now, just go check it out, whatever's available of the day, but it's great recovery tools. And I didn't even know any of this stuff existed when I wanted to quit. I didn't know there were treatment centers. I didn't know there was IOP stuff. I knew about AA, but it wasn't like going to go try it out because I was better than that, <laughs> you know? Oh, I understand. <laughs> but but I was just, I was, I was in this desperate, weird state. I was doing a lot of really weird things I hadn't done in early addiction and substance dependency. And, but I would, you know, I would close the bars down in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I would drive two and a half hours to a casino at like at the border of Michigan and drive home. But I had absolutely zero clue I even went. Like no clue I even went. I would just have poker chips in my pocket the next day on my passed on on my couch. And like any normal person, you got to go back and cash in your chips, right? So, but I would just drive these blackout drives and that was scaring me. But also I would start seeing myself veer off the highway while I was driving down the highway and I would see my car hit a median or something to explode. And I would see myself die, dead on the side of the road. I'm like, that's scary. Yeah. You know, I hated who I was becoming, but I couldn't go tell anybody either, RJ, because if I told you that, you'd send me to the psych ward, right? So it was Robbie's little secret. And Robbie's little secret came to a head one night when I was hanging out in a bar in Fort Wayne. And all of a sudden, it was like music and girls and loud music and everything. And all of a sudden, everything got completely dead silent. And I audibly hear the words, you're done. And then it got really loud again. And I looked around, I'm like, man, that I, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that happened to. And I said to my buddy, Sean, at the time, I go, dude, I got to go home. I think I'm finally done drinking. And he goes, ah, whatever. We'll see you at the bar tomorrow. And, but something changed in me that night. Like literally something shifted. And I'm driving home that night. It was like sober Rob, like the thing that just happened. Like, yeah. I feel like something happened. I'm like, wow. And then there's drunk Rob driving. So we're both driving together, you know. I wasn't seeing hallucinations, people. It was just that it's just a, it's just an alliteration. But right. um, yeah, I'm driving home, and uh, next thing I knew, man, I'd walked up twelve steps to my one bedroom apartment and put three hundred fifty pounds on the barbell, and in complete desperation, isolation, hate, self hatred, everything, I just picked up that barbell and just dropped it across my chest, unhinged my elbows to take myself out of the game, and I look back on that, and I'm like. What I believe happened in that moment was that, you know, God does not stop time, but I feel like God stopped time in my apartment right then and looked at my dog, Jake, and said, go save your dad. And as I'm sitting there with this barbell about to crash down on me in like the milliseconds of time, I looked at my dog and he was nudging my head with his, my knee with his head. Like, what are you doing, dad? Just look at me, those deep eyes of wisdom, right? And I'm just thinking, holy crap, who's going to feed you tomorrow? And I thought about thinking about my parents and my brother. And again, I feel like God carries the weight of the world, at least in my faith. And God's like holding that barbell, looking down, going, okay, son, you done? All right. Pulls that barbell, puts it back on the rack. And it was like my life changed. I mean, my life changed in that moment to where I slept in peace for the first time in decades. My aunt picked me up after I cried out to my parents for help. She's 24 years sober. She picked me up and took me to an AA meeting in the back of a bar in downtown Fort Wayne, Indiana. And these people had a smile on their face, just like you do right now. 
they had smiles, they were laughing, they God, and I'm like, man, I'm in, this is it. And so it got me hook, line and sinker. And for a guy that could drink up to two bottles of scotch in a day or a couple of cases of beer and sales and marketing, golf outings, you know, strip clubs, whatever. It was like, I haven't had a craving at all in 21 years, even as I went to prison and recovery and all this stuff, I never, ever, ever thought about picking up a drink again. And it's been gone and it's, it's totally God. That's all I can amount it to. That's amazing. It's amazing. And as you were thinking, like I finally remembered the word that I wanted to use, which is catalyst, right? Oh yeah, totally. was the catalyst? Because I feel like that, that word is the precursor to all the changes we make in our life is that there's a catalyst that makes you be more honest with yourself. Like, you know, you're, you're telling your story and you have these inklings, you have these thoughts, you think, you, you know what you should do, but there's just, and it's that most, that moment that I don't, uh, a lot of us can't explain because it's, it's not the very worst, right? It's just happens. And that's when your mind is like, it finally puts two and two together and builds that bridge to, you know, to you do. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you one other catalyst moment too, that these are things, you know, you would wake up the normal person, right? right? Like, Oh crap, I probably shouldn't do that again. So I also had a gambling addiction. So that I've been freed from that for about three years. So it took a while to get there. It was a lot harder to break free from the gambling addiction than it was substances. Process addictions are to, for me, it was a lot harder to break free from this process addiction, but in my, in my own addiction and gambling, drinking, whatever I was doing, I was out in Vegas for a work trip, you know, and it was, yeah. I was a really good sober gambler. I mean, I could turn a hundred, I've turned a hundred dollars into 10,000 before 6,000. Like I just strategically played and built up and then you get drunk and you start being like, you're the big dog, right? Well, oh, I was yeah. out in Vegas, hundred dollars turned into close to $10,000. And like my colleagues, other guys in the industry were like, holy cow, look what Loman's doing. I was on the craps table and just, throwing dice and having a blast. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I look at my friend Dennis and I go, dude, I, I don't want to touch this money. We need to go put it in one of their safes. Right. So we put all the money in the safe or the chips in the safe. And I said, do not, I said, tell this guy the code, but I have to sign off for it. If we, like, he knows the code and I got a signature, but don't tell me the code. And I almost beat the living daylight out of Dennis it, towards the end of the night. I'm like, Give me the code because I wanted the money, right? Yeah. And I blew it all plus a couple thousand dollars that night. And I was up in my hotel room. And these are the moments when you deal with suicide, it's very scary. Like guys with gambling addictions have the highest suicide rate of any addiction out there, they say. I'm just going to go with that because it sounds pretty pretty accurate, right? And I'm sitting there in my, in my you know, like top floor-ish hotel room in Vegas. And, I, and just out of nowhere, kind of like barbell crashing down Robbie's chest. I don't think too clearly, but um, I grab the office desk from the from the office chair there, and I pick it up and I run as fast as I can to the window just to launch myself out the window, crash through it like in a movie, and just fall to my death. Right? Yeah. I run as fast as I can. I was a pretty strong guy. I run as fast as I can. I hit that window, and it's almost like the wheels were angled just right, where it just kind of went up the window, hit the ceiling, came down, crashed onto my head, and knocked me on the floor. And I'm looking at the ceiling, laughing hysterically, like, dude, you almost threw yourself out of a window and you're like 20 stories up. What the hell are you doing? That didn't even get me to stop gambling or drinking. It was just nothing happened. So why stop? But I'm so glad that the moment 
that we're talking about June 8th, 2001 happened because it, it's, it's only God that can remove that alcoholism and addiction like that, just gone. Like I never touched a drop my whole life. So anyway, then I had to learn how to live life sober, which that was tough. So right. that's my, that's my sobriety day right there. And that's, I, that's the part that I think a lot of people get scared of is life after sobriety. Like my, I'm having such a great time. Why would I want to be boring? And how I like to equate this is the screen door effect, right? You're living life and you can see everything that's out there. There's like a little bit of a blurriness, like a little hue and everything's happening and you're experiencing it and you're having a great time. But we've been sober for, you know, six months when that chemical starts to really get off of your brain and you start to see in high definition and you can see out that clear window. You're like, Oh, this is what I've been missing. Wow. Oh, this is life. And then as you get further and further away, you start to experience things that are you used to be jaded about, like birds singing, like who enjoys this? That's, that's corny. Yeah. And then now I go for a walk with my boys and I hear some birds singing. I'm like, I wonder what bird that is. That's pretty beautiful. I like that song or just random days, like walking on the beach. I used to think it was overrated and stuff like that. And now I love doing it. I love doing these little things that I used to take. And be like, that's corny. No, nobody really likes to do it. They just say it so they feel better about themselves. But no, like it's it is it's real. And when you start to accept that and start to do the inner healing work, which is also something that uh, that's that's a process. That's a process. So that's 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 what I like to express to people is it is scary. There are hard times it's worth it for all the benefits that we've taught. We are about to talk about as well. Yeah. It's huge. And that's when, you know, when I sit down, cause you know, I do, I'm, I'm, I'm an interventionist recovery coach and do a lot of interesting things with people to help them see that beauty of what is to come. And I, I tell them when I meet, you know, it's, it's, I meet people in very unique ways. Let's just say that <laughs> when I meet families and yeah. husbands and wives and their kids and all these things, there's a struggle and issue, you know, and, but I tell them this, I said, you know, when I first got sober, my biggest fear was I'm not going to be able to drink at my daughter's wedding. And I didn't even have kids yet. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was 25 years down the road and I'm thinking, wow, yeah. what a, what a crazy fleeting thought. And that went away quickly because I just knew as I met all these people in recovery and, you know, back then it was kind of like AA was the thing. And, mm-hmm. and there wasn't a whole lot of this other stuff that's here now, which is awesome to guide people towards. Yep. But it was just that moment of, man, well, I'm going to miss out on that. And the reality was all the other weddings I'd been to in my life, I missed out on anyway because I was drunk. Yes. And passed out and just like blacked out. So it's like, <laughs> I didn't really miss much, but I missed a lot. And that's that's the part that we like to gloss over because <laughs> because we try to hold on so much. So you mentioned being an interventionist and that's something that is, you know, that's an art as well as a skill because you have to be fluid. You have to be, uh, you know, adjust your processes. So what are some of the things that you like to, to look for, you know, in let's say you, you have somebody who is at the precipice of that catalyst moment that we were talking about. So, how do you try to help them with that catalyst? Yeah, well, that's on page 14, RJ, of my new book, <laughs> the Addiction Intervention Book. I love it. I love um, it. 
Man, that's so, so I did write a book recently called The Addiction Intervention Book. And here's why I wrote it for exactly what you just said is as an interventionist, I have been trained under and, and read a bunch of other intervention scenarios, intervention modalities, intervention ways to help people, right? Mm-hmm. And we're dealing with chaos and calamity, right? So for me, there's not just one way to do an intervention. Absolutely. There just isn't. And so I wrote this book where I actually interviewed about 20 interventionists total, but narrowed it down to 10 interventionists that I feature in the book because it's their recovery story and why they love to help people and how they help people. So when, when I was able to spend all of this time with other interventionists, I be, naturally became a better interventionist, right? Yeah. And it, it, it helped me kind of formulate my way. I actually, I just went to this recovery event today and a woman said, Oh, because I wear my you know addiction intervention book T-shirt, so people ask and stuff like, "Oh, is that you on the back of your shirt?" <laughs> I go, "Yep, <laughs> why not?" You know, yeah. Um, but she looked at me and she goes, "So what?" And this is the common question. So what modality do you use for interventions? And I said, "I use the hybrid one." She goes, "Oh, what's that one?" I go, "It's anyone that's going to work." <laughs> you know. Like what recovery program is going to work for the guy in front of me? Because I'm a strong Christian, and people know that in my mm-hmm. book and online and everything. And about 45% of my clients don't care about that. They're just like, "Hey, we know you're a Christian, but we don't. We're not. You know, we're whatever they are." And I said, "That's fine. I go. I won't. I won't be bringing the Bible, and I won't be bringing you know worship music to the intervention." But they said, "We're, we're we hear you're good at what you do, and so we'd love to use you." And so for me. You know, it's 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 listening so much to what people are telling me about their loved one, their their husband, their wife, their brother, their sister, their grandparent, whatever it is, and just listening and, and trying to figure out what is the best way to help this person in front of me. Because it's not always go to a treatment center. Hey, fellow brethren out there that work at treatment centers and stuff like that, the programs are good out there, and there's a lot of bad ones, right? But yeah, you, anybody will take your money. So it's how do you get your loved one the best help? And and it may not be going to treat. It might just be like, hey, um, let me just go have coffee with your husband and talk to him about recovery and share my story. It's like, whoa, dude, you're pretty open about your story. I go, yeah. I go, how much of that are you doing behind closed doors? And crack that door open for them and just say, if you want help, man, you can go get help. And it doesn't need to cost you fifty dollars to $120,000. I got sober for free going to AA. Now, what I wish I would have done, you mentioned something earlier, RJ, that reminded me of this is, um, I can't remember exactly what you said, but it's just the importance of understanding from where you come. Yeah. So so I'm big on coaching, counseling, and community and anything I talk to people about. And if they're unwilling to get a counselor or if they're unwilling to step into a type, a community type, honestly, they're not the right person to work with for me because I'm all, I'm so big on that that I can't, Helps someone without talking about it. So, and I, the amount like that you can tell that you care, like, and you, the fact that you're willing to use like everything and do the hybrid model, like you said, like that, that is the sign of somebody who isn't just doing it just to do it. Like that's somebody doing it because they care. Right. And that's, that's the beauty of this. That's the beauty of meeting people like yourself and others is get hearing that passion and then, you know, experiencing it and being like, I need to open up to different perspectives. And that's why I changed the podcast to different perspectives 
because how I went sober, I was, I'm a stubborn asshole. That's how I went sober. Like (laughs) straight up, I tapped into my stubbornness. Like, and it turns out like I have ADHD. So I kind of hyper fixate on things and I ended up hyper fixating on that, but I didn't truly heal until this podcast started. Mm. And the reason is I started hearing different perspectives. I started hearing stories. I started hearing different ways of looking at life. Yeah. Oh, oof. it's, it, it's heavy when you start to be honest with yourself and like that catalytic moment that I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like, how do you see somebody and you know that they want to change their environment? They want to change their job. They want to change their, you know, relationship to alcohol or drugs or escapes or gambling. You know, they want to, but they're not at the point where they're ready to build that bridge from wanting to, to acting on it. How do you get people to be honest with themselves? Because that's really what it is. You know it's there, but you're still telling yourself that one little story that keeps you caught. So yeah. how do you how do you how do you make that like the connection? And I think a lot of it's superficial at the start, right? Oh yeah. It has to be. Yeah, because they because they don't they only you only know what you know. And yes. it's kind of like you want something. And so, I mean, I, I share stories a lot with people and it's, it's intervention stories. It's coaching stories. It's, you know, there, there was one intervention I did with a young guy and his sister was worried about him. And so we orchestrated this whole intervention and he, he kind of just went to shut everybody up. Right. Yeah. Which that, that can work and not work, you know, but I, I just want to encourage people in this part that if, Let's say your circumstances have pushed you to a place where you have to go get help. You don't want it yet, but you have to go get help. And you go and you're talking to this therapist, right? It's kind of like, oh, yeah, life's good. You just kind of, you know, I mean, you're wasting your time, right? You're just kind of, uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know why I'm here either. Um, and so without open honesty and just getting it all out there, because there's no, there's really no need to hold back. I mean, a therapist, unless you're talking about murdering someone or, you know, child molestation and things like that. Just tell them your crap and get it out because by doing that, you find freedom. And what I always let people know is to walk into a non-judgment zone is a great thing to do. Like people meet me and they just know I'm an open book. And I say, find someone that you feel comfortable with because to go to go to a therapist you hate or a counselor you hate and you're not going to tell them anything. And this guy I'm telling that I was telling you about. So we went to treatment for 30 days and and I as long as there's a release of information, which I'm pretty good at getting signed, I can kind of know what they're talking about. And, and I know a lot of history of the person because I've interviewed everyone in their family as part of an intervention process. And I give them notes that says, here's, inf- here's a history of this guy real quick. Mm-hmm. Now their goal, they, The therapist doesn't go, hey, here's the notes your family told this guy, read it. They just know a history to try to pull stuff out. And this guy, he every time he met a 40 plus year old man in a bar, he would punch him. Didn't matter. He just thought they were 40. He would literally get in a bar fight with someone over 40 because he was pissed off and hated his dad. Yeah. Right. But here's a guy that went to treatment for 30, well, 45 days total after detox. Not once did he talk about court, getting in fights with the older men or anything. And he left. And guess what happened a couple weeks after he got out of treatment? Went and got drunk at a bar, got in a fight, went to jail. Yeah. 
and then now he began his legal journey, which he didn't have to do. Right. And um, so unless I, I believe people can go get help when they're not a hundred percent committed, but the doors slightly cracked open for whatever reason. And, but the work is up to you and families ask me a lot. They say, Hey Rob, what's your success rate with interventions? And I said, I don't know. Go, what do you mean? <laughs> you don't know. Well, was it 40%, 80%, 100%? I said, you know, here's the reality. Success of anyone changing their life is based on a lot of factors. Number one is, did they do the work and were they open and honest? That's huge. Well, we don't know that because they're the one that's in treatment and talking to therapists and doing that stuff. But two, if the family hasn't done any work, then they're just going to move back into the same dysfunctional family. Yeah. The next reunion is going to be the same. They might be sober, but the family's still doing their thing. And then they get mad if the loved one drank again because of, well, we knew it wouldn't work. So I am so big on the family being a part of the process because the reality is if my mom and dad took care of me till I was 18 and I was drinking and drugging and partying from the age of 13 to 18, they were still there for the five years, right? So there's all these factors. So I'm big on the family system getting help and everyone has a part in it. No shaming. It's just saying, look, we're here on this day right now. And the reality of the situation is friend, buddy, whoever you are, today can be your bottom right now. This moment can be your bottom right here. You don't have to go get a DUI. You don't have to lose your job. You don't have to go to jail. You don't have to have CPS show up. You don't have like none of this stuff has to happen in your life. But today we're giving you options, you know, at the end of the intervention, right? It's like we're giving you options today to change your life. Right now can be your bottom. You have a choice to go get help, change your life, figure out your past, where you're going in the future with coaching and all these things, or keep doing what you're doing. It's your choice today. What do you want to do? And you let them choose. I'm not about forcing people to go, but it's about choice. And if they choose it, then guess what they can do? six months down the road when they blame their family for never wanting to help them. You remember six months ago when we did a family intervention, we had everything lined up to get you help, but you chose to walk out the door and keep drinking and drugging. That was your choice. So I'm all about bringing the bottom up in someone's life. Today can be your bottom. And, um, but it, it boils down to willingness and desire and maybe they have desire, but not willingness or willingness, not desire <laughs> can't be open and honest because their life's a bunch of false falsitudes anyway, but it starts with a conversation. And if no one converses about it, then they don't have the opportunity to go get help from a loving perspective, not a yelling, screaming, you, you know, blah, blah, blah match. It's dude, we love you so much, but I'm an architect. This guy's an interventionist. I'm a plumber. I don't know anything about rehab, you know, talk to the guy that knows the stuff and, give you options and then you get to choose whatever the heck you want to do. And that is what it, what, when you boil down that change, whether, you know, like we talked about with whatever it is, it's about making that decision for yourself. Yes. Like in, investing it, in yourself is what I tell yes, them. It's about you exactly. investing in your future. Yeah. And so walking people to that line and saying, here you get to choose. Do you want to do it or not? Like that is, that's the only way it's going to stick. Cause like you said, you're going to go and you're just going to go through the motions and guess what happens when you go through the motions? Not a thing. Yeah. That's what a lot of us are doing through life is going through the motions too. And you don't even realize it 
till somebody grabs your hand and walks you up to it and says, look at this, look at this. And they're not shoving your nose in it. Like you said, no shame. Yeah. Just look. And that's, that is, that's, that's a powerful intervention. And that it's difficult. It's even difficult, like for a family member to hold themselves like calmly. Right. And not yeah. getting, cause a lot of times I've noticed, especially myself, but a lot of other people, passion can come off as fire because passion yeah. burns hot. Right. Yeah. So, so people, they, they mix mistake passion for anger. And it's like, when you, when you can have somebody there that you trust that is going to be there to help catch you when you fall, because you're going to, if you, if you are being walked and looking at all these scenarios and all of a sudden you have this realization, it's going to feel like a, a fall. So having that, that's, that's massive. Um, do you, with interventions, do you do like slow kind of burn not setting up like meetings with the entire family and doing it all at once, but kind of like, Hey, I'm going to call them on this day and we're going to have a, I'm just going to let them know how I feel. Or do you like to have it more controlled? Yes. And yes. Yes. And yes. Um, <laughs> uh, both. All both. Yeah. Above. So, so it all, it all depends how the first phone call goes with the family member that's calling me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because so many times families just, they know that their loved one needs help. So they keep telling him he needs help. Well, if you're telling an addict, someone struggling with addictions, hey, you need help. They already know that. But the pride is so high, they're not going to do it for you, right? Yep. And so they know they need help. So sometimes I ask a simple question and I'll say, um, have you ever asked your husband or wife or son or daughter if they want help? Well, no, I just know they need help. So I'm telling them, and I said, okay, why don't you just ask them if they're open to talking to somebody that could help them? Just a conversation, simple coffee, whatever. And so I'll throw that out there sometimes if I feel that that's appropriate. And so, again, I've met guys at Panera Bread or at a park bench and just said, hey, you know, thanks for coming. I know you probably don't want to be here, but I'm literally here just to talk to you, man, or, you know, or girl or whoever it is. I'm just here to really talk to you. And I want to share with my story. I want to hear your story. Your family's told me a bunch, but their perspectives can be skewed sometimes too. Oh, absolutely. Right? They really can. And so I have to figure out if, because families will call and try to manipulate the situation too, where their loved one, I found out, doesn't really have a, like a bad addiction problem. It really is the families that's got the bigger problem, right? And it, And it's just some family feud that's happened and they're trying to like, put this on addiction. Right. And I've had those happen a couple of times. I'm like, I honestly, I, unless I, I, I'm, it's hard to fool me, but sometimes I'm just looking at person. I'm like, what, what can you please explain to me? Like why this is going on. And so I get to try to get their perspective. So that's the easier, softer way, right. Yeah. To let's just have coffee. And, and, and then I immediately start shifting the family say, Hey, here's some resources you could use like Al-Anon, Naranon, Gammonon, uh, Celebrate Recovery, um, go take craft classes and just all this stuff. So I'm immediately trying to get people into resource mode of changing their behavior in life. So sometimes I literally try to start with coffee. Then it might be, let's have a family meeting next week and invite your loved one to come and say, hey, we just want to have a family meeting. We don't know how to help you, but we're concerned. This guy Rob's going to come over. Pretty cool dude. You'll like him when you meet him. 
but we're going to meet at Wednesday at 12 o'clock. We expect you to be there. And if they show up, it's cool. It's fun conversation. It's like, hey, I try to get people to admit they at least have a dependence on substances Mm -hmm. or gambling or shopping or porn addiction. Like, at least there's a dependence. Maybe you're not an addict. It's all semantics, right? Yeah. um, Because people don't want to say they're an addict, but they will easily admit the fact that, oh, I'm totally dependent on alcohol. I need need two glasses of scotch before I go to bed every single night. All right, cool. All right. Do you think I'm an alcoholic? I'm like, man, that's up to you to decide. I mean, yeah, if you have if you have to have two glasses of scotch every night, what happens if you run low on scotch? Yeah. Well, I got to go to the store, right? So that would be like a family conversation. But then, I mean, yeah, it's several times it's, you know, we're waiting around the corner in our cars. We're having a conversation three blocks over. The team's there, whoever needs to be a part of the team. And I figure that out because I do a lot of coaching. I coach the heck out of families. And I, I tell people they can't be a part of the process or I let them know they can be a part of the process. And there's reasons why. And then, yeah, we're, we're pulling the cars in, we're pulling one car behind their car in the driveway. So they can't back out. You know, whoever's in the house knows the car keys are hidden. The suitcase is packed. Like we're ready to go. We got plane tickets booked. I mean, it's a whole orchestration. And then we show up and I just kind of take over and, and guide the whole entire conversation. And it's all about love, care and compassion and pain. And it's the way it's delivered on how it will be received. And that we just try to do things differently than what's normally done. And I just let families know, hey, we got, the goal is not to heal your family system today. The goal is for your loved one to say, yes, they want help. Right? Mm-hmm. And if the minute they say yes, we are jumping into action. No, Uncle Billy, you can't read your letter anymore. He said yes. She said yes. So we're going. We're gone. We're in the car. We're out. And all my my, I always tell people, because people are concerned about jobs. So we talk about FMLA, you know, how long have they been working there? What's the history like? Do they have kind of do they have protection or not? Do they have insurance or not? Do they need scholarships or not? You know, because I I build up my nonprofit side to what I do to try to help people that have like counseling needs or sober living help and I can help them in the after aftercare after part, right? Yeah. And then uh if so so it's all I mean, there's there's a lot of orchestration that goes into that. And sometimes I apologize. I forget what your original question was. And I sometimes can just kind of go down the rabbit hole of like, you know, being passionate about it. Um, but I, what was your original question when you asked me before? Well, I started talking? And you've done, you've, you've covered a lot of it, but it was just the <laughs> styles of intervention, yeah. um, you know, and how you with like shifting between them and um, yeah. that kind of a and thing. He, and here's one thing, like in the book, I actually have a whole section on questions people should ask when they're starting to look for an interventionist or a treatment center and, and their questions to just think about, because like when you hire someone to help you, like interventions aren't, are not inexpensive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot that goes into it. And I'm a, you know, hybrid guy. So like, I'll, I'll kind of float my rates here and there, depending on the situation. Right. And to help people out if they just are really strapped. Right. Um, and some families, it's not even a big deal. It's just like, here's the fee. Perfect. Let's get them some help. We're, we're all in. Let's do this thing. And so I, I really have to assess kind of where that is, but there, there are some interventionists and they have, they have their process. They have like their three favorite treatment centers and all they, they recommend them every time. And it's like, you know, ABC, ABC every time. And just, it doesn't really matter what the issue is. It's just, they know the treatment center they're going to refer to is going to do a good job. Right. I'm kind of more like, 
I need to hear the whole story before I know what to recommend. Because when you, if I, I've had, I mean, this happens all the time where you interview a different family member and they'll say things like, well, has aunt so-and-so ever told you that, you know, her cousin's dad, meaning her uncle uh, molested her when she was a kid. Nope. Nobody's told me that before. So people reveal stuff because I tell them this is totally confidential what we talk about. Mm -hmm. This is only for me to help figure out what treatment program to put, like to guide towards inpatient, outpatient, whatever. But when you hear stuff like that, you're like, oh, okay, that could make sense. And sometimes it might boil down, RJ, where it's like if it's a female client and they've been abused by men her whole life, I may not be the right person to do that intervention. Yeah. I'll refer it to a, a colleague of mine and said, hey, look, here's the deal. I just, in my gut, I don't think I'm the guy that's going to get her into treatment because of 40-something-year-old men that have abused her. And I'm like, okay, I, I am that guy. Right. You know, you see me and I'm 50 years old and it's like white guy, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's like, okay. So I, so there's a couple of females I'll reach out to and say, um, hey, I might, you know, have you take this one. And so I'm actually building up my team a little bit too, to have that option. Right. Which is important. So, so I'm like growing my team as the, as the year goes on. And I want to make sure that the family's comfortable with the person. And that's, again, that's why I wrote the book was to say, Hey, here's all these different ways to help somebody. I mean, you know, I mean, some of these, we have it, it. So in the book, the people I interviewed, we have about 280 years of intervention experience in the book. And about 300, 321 years of sobriety in the book. So people know what they're talking about in this book. Absolutely. I mean, you know, is, is that all? That's it? <laughs> 280 yeah, that's it. and 300. Yeah. So for 20 bucks on Amazon, it's a pretty good deal for a professional or family to read through and say, oh, okay, this stuff works. Right. And that... You know, that's the, that's the thing too, is like having the, the resources available for people to look at. But what, what I love that your answer really like shortening it is a holistic approach. Sure. Yeah. A holistic approach. Absolutely. Like, and that's the thing with like, you know, sobriety and recovery and everything like the, that holistic approach, like this is what I have to change right right now. This is it. And then Mm -hmm. after that, well, why was it? Why, why did I, why was I on that? Why did I, why did it take so long for me to have this aha, this catalyst moment that what what's what's going on here? And then you're not finding excuses. You're giving yourself grace to grow. Yeah. Giving yourself some, oh, I, I really needed that help in that moment, but I couldn't ask why. Because society said, as a man, I have to do everything myself. Uh, I can't ask for help. I can't confront my emotions. I can't. What does that even look like? I don't know. I don't even know it's a problem because I'm everything's going well. Yeah. Paying the bills, taking care of everything. What do you what do you mean there? I had something to think about. Like all of this adds up. And yeah. that's so when you take that into account, it is more likely that if not right now, eventually it's gonna happen. Mm. That's so true. And and that you know, that's why I did this swim for recovery thing right now, too, because it's 30 stories, different perspectives. You and I do podcasting, you know, interviewed a couple hundred people, and everyone has a different slant to it. But there's a common theme. There was desire, they wanted to change their life, and how they got there was totally different. And I, I do want to talk a little bit about your uh, screen analogy. Um, 
kind of like early recovery screen analogy you were talking about before yeah. too. If I can dive into that. Yeah, a let's bit. go into that. Yeah. I'd love to hear. Because er, early recovery again, you know, when I got sober and I was, my first thought was, I can't even drink at my daughter's wedding and I didn't have kids yet. I was 30, 25 years down the road. So I just heard a lot of hope in the rooms. Now you have a choice. If you decide to go like step into recovery, you can compare, compare, compare. I ain't as bad as him, whatever. I didn't go through that and excuse your way right out the door. Yeah. And you're going to, right. You're yeah. going to compare and be like, well, I'm not that bad. <laughs> yeah, Totally. Totally. And you, but it's, there's so many things now. I remember I was, I was in a meeting in New York when I was writing my first book and I'm sitting there, there's a multi-billionaire that owns a clothing company on my right. There's a homeless guy practically picking bugs out of his beard on my left. And I'm like right in the middle. I'm not moving from the guy that has bugs, you yeah. know, or trying to figure out how I can get something from the billionaire. Mm -hmm. I'm just sitting in the room. I'm like, dude, this is addiction, you know, but Everyone had a little hope in that meeting, you know, and so whether you like 12 steps or not, get over it. You know, it's like, go do smart recovery, go to celebrate recovery, go to something that's going to work. But the bottom line is there's sober softball leagues. There's sober motorcycle gangs. There's sober pool clubs where they go shoot pool and they're sober. There's sober groups that do that go to music festivals and do that sober. You can find almost anything of an interest group. That now they're swimming for recovery. I am going to turn that. <laughs> yeah, look at that. I, I am going to turn this into something for next year. Just wait. Absolutely. Um, but you find like-minded interest people, and you look around the rooms of recovery, and you're like, man, these are people normally that wouldn't mix. Well-to-do attorneys to the guy doing, you know, picking up trash at you know down the street or whatever, and it's all mixes of people because addiction doesn't discriminate, neither does recovery. And so I just want to encourage anyone listening that. If you're considering changing your life and you don't know where to go, go find a local recovery meeting and just, it's free, tap into it. And you can make all the excuses you want to like, oh yeah, these 12 steps don't work. Well, guess what? They work for millions of other people. So you're not that unique or, you know, celebrate recovery doesn't work because it's all Christian centered. Well, it works for millions of other people because they change their life. So Look more at the similarities and the differences because nobody walks into AA or NA or celebrate recovery on a winning streak. You know, nobody and, goes to prison on a winning streak. Yeah. Right. And so then you get into mental health. That's like a whole other show. Um, at, it's all it absolutely together. is. It absolutely yeah. is. And the, the fact that we are talking about how that's tied together now too, is just so massive. Like the fact that we, it, we used to separate it and why? That yeah. was so, it's silly. Yeah. Um, but like what, you know, what you said, like what you are doing right now that you want to change, whether it be alcohol, drugs, whatever, you are keeping yourself in a box. You think that you're giving yourself all this freedom, right? That's why I can't do this because I need my freedom. But what you're doing is you're keeping yourself boxed in by that because you can do whatever your mind says you can do, and you can do it without drinking. You can do it without gambling. You can do it without, the only thing you can't do is that one thing. I have gotten married sober at my own wedding with open bar, everything. You know, I've been to Italy twice sober. I have been 10 years as a high voltage line electrician sober, like 
All of this I have done sober. I moved across the country sober, become a father twice sober. Like everything that has been a catalyst in my life, everything that has that has a smile on my face right now, sober. And you know what else? Like, you know, you mentioned earlier and we didn't have time to go into it, but like, you know, you went to uh, prison sober. Like I'm going through a divorce sober. That, it sucks. It sucks, but you can do this, the shit part of life as well. Yeah. Sober. And you doing this, like it also helps you discover who you are instead of hiding it from the world. Yep. Totally. I love your highlight to your highlight reel of sobriety. It's like (laughs) right before you said that, I was thinking, man, two years in recovery, I went to Rome, Italy and ran a marathon in honor of my grandpa, team diabetes sober. Right. And it was never even thought about drinking in 2006 God gave me a vision to put a huge three-day Christian music festival in the mountains of Colorado together. In 2008, that happened. 15,000 people came, 72 bands of speakers. It was, it was awesome. And through that, I met my wife. You know, We got married 16 years ago, and I, my daughter's been born. But here's one thing I want to throw out to people. Seasons change. So you've got to mm-hmm. stay close to people in recovery, Bible studies, whatever you're a part of, right? Because um, when I got married and had kids in the business and all that stuff, I quit doing recovery. And that led to my mental breakdown, which led me to prison, which, hey, guess what? You can read all about it in the Addiction Intervention book, Chapter 2. Um, but it was like all these cool things I've been able to do sober. But the mental health is such a big, big, big deal. So um, there's a lot of freedom ahead, a lot of excitement ahead for everyone listening, whether you're already in recovery or thinking about recovery and it just in life transition. But alcohol substances is not the answer. Pornography is not the answer. Gambling is not the answer. Lying and deceit is not the answer. It's being truly authentic and figuring out who the heck you are, figuring out what your identity is, where's your open purpose. I mean, all these things, it takes a while to get there, but you can get there. Like listen to RJ and all the cool stuff he has in his life, myself. And there's a lot of amazing people in recovery and recovery is fun. It's a lot of fun. And you, and you know what the best you... part is? That's what I was, you just, we're oh. just going. <laughs> you remember it, right? But I don't know, I'm 50, I started to forget things, you know, but, um, but um, yeah, you remember it all. And that's really cool. So um, I love, I love the podcasting and what you're doing and just sharing stories of hope and inspiration and uh, right on, man. It's pretty cool. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, you taking everything you've been through, writing this book, the intervention, like having that podcast, right. And doing all of this, it's like, that is what it's about. And like, you, you could tell your passion. You could tell like, it's not about who I am. It's about helping those others. And like, that's just finding your passion, you know, helps you find your purpose. And that helps you to everything that we're talking about, we're smiling about. And honestly, you know, that mental health aspect to it, right? That self-honesty, it, it hurts. And like mm. going that early sobriety is scary. Like what's on the other side of this? But let me tell you, like I've gone through, I already said, like I'm going through a divorce right now. Like I'm smiling. How am I smiling? Like this is one of the hardest things I've ever been through in life. Yeah. But I'm smiling because I'm not putting these internal hopes and dreams on external things. 
and I'm not taking these external things and putting them on my internal hopes and dreams. Like the, the, what you go through and that don't mean it doesn't hurt. Cause it hurts. It hurts. And I have nights where I don't talk to anybody and I'm just sitting on the couch eating a pint of, you know, Ben and Jerry's, which is delicious by the way. Why would, what's you your want favorite to do flavor? That? What's your favorite? Do you have a favorite flavor? I, so and I a- waffle in between them, but right now, like cherry Garcia is like, that's it, okay. man. All right. How about you? I, I, I don't like cherry Garcia, but, yeah. but, but, um, I don't know. My favorite ice cream is always mint chocolate chip. So whatever brand that is, I'm, I'm all in, but I like bluebell peppermint ice cream during Christmas is my okay. favorite ice cream in the world. So, yeah, I, uh, I had, a. I, one of my ex-girlfriends, that was her thing. Like when it came around Christmas time, we'd have to go buy like <laughs> seven gallons and yeah. like keep it through the summer and everything too. So, and I wasn't allowed to touch it at a certain point, which is funny, but, <laughs> um, Rob, like you, you've been an absolute open book and a pleasure like to have on what's one thing you want people to walk away thinking about life. Well, I well, I feel that the most important thing is taking time to invest in yourself to figure out who you are. So any opportunity you can get diving into things that will truly help you figure out who you really are. Because if you don't figure that out, something else is going to define it for you. And that is just a moving target. So uh, step into trying to really discover. It's a scary journey, but press in to figure out who are you. Like look in the mirror and just say, who am I? And then just be quiet and see what comes to your mind. And it might not be pleasant, but the good thing is that those can be all replaced with positive, awesome things on who you really are. So figure out who you are and then live your life out of that. That's beautiful. I wanted to sit there for a second and let, let that sink in. Cause that was, that's advice that people should clip and just have that when they need it right there. I'm going to cut that out and I'm going to post it on social media and I'm going to say that save this for when you need to hear because it's true. And I'm just going to throw this little anecdote in there that I've been on this very vocal journey since like the first of the year that I identified some deep self-loathing inside myself. So I didn't just jump from there to, Hey, you're awesome. Looking in the mirror. It's like, Hey, you're, you're okay. Like you're okay. You're getting through this day. You're okay. You're, putting food on the table for your kids. You're doing okay. And that has transformed into this person that's smiling in front of you today. doesn't mean that I say I love you in the mirror. Definitely not every day. And definitely I don't, I don't, I can't yet. <laughs> not at that yeah. level, but it's about getting better every single day. Yeah. So Rob, like we're going to go check out um, our swim for recovery, right? com. We're going to go check out freerecoverybook.com. Where else can people keep up with you? Uh, I'm all over social media too. It's Rob, L-O-H-M-A-N. Just go find me somewhere. But um, I, I will tell people this. If you're just struggling and it sucks and you don't know what the heck to do right now, and you're like, I'm not going to go to website. I don't do that stuff. Um, I give my phone number out. Just say, literally, just call me. If I can pick up the phone, I will pick it up. Now, if you call me at 2.30 in the morning, sorry, dude, I'm not answering the phone. Like normal life operating hours and stuff like that. But um, I just want people to know they have a resource. I mean, the two things you said, swimforrecovery.com is huge. Freerecoverybook.com is huge. Um, but people just want to reach out and call and you're in a moment. Um, 970-331-4469. Shoot me a text. 
tell me, tell them you heard me on RJ's show. And um, if I can respond, I will. If I don't, I'm not ignoring you, but phone numbers that like a real fast way, but find me on social media, go to those two websites. You can connect with me through that also. That's awesome. That's very generous of you. And uh, this has been, this has been a joy. This has been a great episode. So for those who don't know, this is Untapped Keg. Made it this far into the show. Uh, podcast about the different perspectives of sobriety and mental health because the only right way to get sober is the way that works for you. So hopefully you can take pieces, put them into your own life. Marjorie Zimmerman, you can find us on Tap Keg everywhere, literally everywhere. Any social media, reach out. You can, all our DMs are open. We'll help you. We'll get you, get you in touch with Rob if that's what you'd like. Um, you know, help you find resources and you know, that will be, you'll be able to find us on YouTube as well. We're going to have some, we do some fun things and there's some fun things in the, down the pipe soon. So (laughs) there's a little teaser for you. Stay tuned. I like it. I like it. Stay tuned. Yeah. So let's try to be better tomorrow than we were today. Cause at least we don't make it. We tried. Have a great week, everybody. I love you.